Our scripture for tonight's reflection comes to us from Joel chapter 2. Joel is one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the minor prophets. And uh, don't confuse him with being a minor prophet for meaning that what he has to say is not any less important. The prophet Joel speaks to us a word of invitation that, that fits well with our invitation to Lent. It is a call to repentance, and it is a call that reminds us that this is serious, not hopeless, but nonetheless serious and important. And so the passage we're going to read is just the opening of chapter 2, just the first two verses of Joel 2, and then we'll skip down a little ways um, through some of the poetry, though it's beautiful, we're going to pick up and uh, make our focus in verses 12 through 17. But before we read God's word together, let's pray. God, as we come to you this evening, we ask that you fill us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us with grace for ourselves as we receive a call to repentance. Fill us with grace for our neighbor that our call to repentance may not make us think of who else needs to repent, but rather that we may receive this call from your word to our own hearts, that whatever you are doing in this world, that we may take the posture of letting it start with us. So Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to your word. Let us receive these words of invitation Help us to take them seriously, not in a way that makes us feel shame or hopelessness, but that we may receive your holy scriptures with a seriousness that leads us into action, into diligent repentance, and into a holy mindfulness. In the name of, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. After the reading of Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 and 12 through 17, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you have received it with gratitude, I invite you simply to respond at that moment with thanks be to God. Joel chapter 2, beginning at verses 1 and 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. And moving to verse 12, but even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. <coughs> Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. 
So blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn by a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The prophets have a way of saying things with the utmost seriousness, with words that communicate a dire message, and they do not hold back any poetic or evocative imagery to make us feel that this threat is very real. And with all of the prophets, the resounding theme where they all end up at some point or another with varying degrees of hopefulness is that the day of the Lord is coming near, that God is not far away. Joel 2 begins with an alarm being sounded, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy hill, meaning everyone needs to know that there is something wrong. There is trouble And it's not just far off with the army that's coming. It is here in our own hearts. An invitation or a declaration to let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming and is close at hand. When we hear those words that the day of the Lord is coming and is close at hand, it might make different reactions come out of us. For one, hopefully none of us would assume that we are without sin, that God coming near does not make us say, well, good thing I'm perfect. Rather, when we realize that God is near and we are without sin, there might be different reactions that will come up from within us. One potential reaction is that of shame, as we have a dimly lit service that's a call to reflection, a call to repentance, we might feel some shame welling up in us. We might hear some voices in our head reminding us that we're not enough, that we're not good enough, that there's something wrong with us. I invite you to just pay attention to that reaction, but to also offer a greater hope that Scripture has. Because throughout the scriptures, we see that shame will only lead us to hiding better. Not to action, repentance, change, or transformation. Shame will only lead us to learn how to hide our sin better. From Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve knew that they had done wrong, and then they believed that they simply were wrong, they learned how to hide. It doesn't work but we can get really good at hiding our sin. We can hide it from other people, and in fact, we can even hide it from ourselves, turning away from the truth. Shame is not helpful, 
and it's not hopeful. And though Joel, the prophet, offers a dire warning, there is not an absence of hope. I would rather offer that our invitation to reflection and mindfulness of our own lives might make us aware of some guilt. Our reflection on how we've loved God and loved neighbor or failed to do so might lead us to some guilt in our lives, to things we have done or left undone. It is our intent that that guilt will lead us to an awareness, and that awareness leads us to conviction. Because conviction does not leave us in hiding, conviction leads us into action. So even as the trumpet is being sounded, as the alarm is being set off, and there is an invitation to let everyone tremble at the thought that God is drawing near, it should lead us to conviction, and it leads us to action. Joel speaks of a large and mighty army, such as there never was before and never will be again. Meaning, this is really serious. It doesn't matter who you are, if there's a big army coming to you, it means trouble. This is serious, once again, but not hopeless. Now, the prophet Joel spoke at a time when the nations of Israel and Judah were doing quite well. They were wealthy and powerful and prestigious. They had everything they could have wanted, and they were growing, and their borders were well protected, and the nations were expanding. And then an army of locusts came and ate away what they had. It was serious, not hopeless. But the self-assurance that they had everything that they needed, that they were doing just fine, could no longer be held up as an option. It was a serious situation, but once again, not hopeless. And the prophet Joel links this army of locusts that swept over and ushered the people from prosperity into poverty with another kind of prophecy of an army that would not only come to take their crops, but to take them away. And once again, the prophet Joel holds this line of making sure that we know how serious the situation is, but also that it's not a hopeless situation situation. In some ways, Joel's context is not that different from our own because the people's temptations are not that different from our own. To believe that we're self-sufficient, that we're in control, that we're doing just fine, that we have what we need and we're good to go. Joel would ask us, using the word of the Lord that was given to him to share to us, to say, take a closer look. Don't assume that everything is all okay all the time because there is an army coming and this is serious and this matters. For us on Ash Wednesday, we should think of our sin as something that is serious, not hopeless, but certainly serious, something that demands our attention and our mindfulness. Serious but not hopeless. Verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me, says the Lord, with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Friends, there is good news. There is gospel good news contained in that simple verse. Because the Lord says, return to me. Meaning you are not cut off. That God has not disowned you. 
that as we come to this night of reflecting on our mortality, knowing that we will die, knowing that we are sinful, sinful at birth, that we have not been disowned by God. And that even as maybe we have wandered away, we have have turned elsewhere, God has not turned away from us. Return to me, says the Lord, with all your heart. With what? With fasting and weeping and mourning. With fasting, not as something to go through the motions with, but something to make us aware of hunger as a lesson to teach us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. With weeping, not forced tears to put on a show, but with grief. Weeping for our own shortcomings and also permission to weep for things in this world that are simply not right. To grieve, hurt, hate, divisiveness, factions, and prejudice. We weep for the world around us And for our own shortcomings and sinfulness, we weep and we mourn. But we do so in the context of knowing that God has not disowned us, that we have not been cut off from God, but rather our sinfulness evokes an invitation from God who says, rend your heart and not your garments, in verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments, meaning change your life not change your clothes. You can go through as many wardrobe changes as you want, but God is less interested than what is on your back, than what is in your heart. What is the change in your heart or in your life that would bring the most glory to God and the most peace to your own soul? Return to the Lord your God. Do so with weeping and fasting and mourning. Do so with a Lenten practice that you set out to sustain for 40 days, whether it be a fast that you choose to to give something up, not to punish yourself, but to make you mindfulness of your longings and desires and to ask instead, God, help me to focus my desires on you. Or take on a practice. Take on something that will help you grow. This can be done in all kinds of clever and creative ways. And if you don't have a brilliant answer for what you're going to do right now, that's okay. Talk to someone you trust, and you can still figure something out. Do so with weeping and mourning and fasting. And as was discussed just a little bit before service, we might mess up even on our fasts, even on our best attempts to be faithful, to be diligent to God. We might still mess up. Pay attention to why and move on because God's mercies are new every morning because his faithfulness is great. As the analogy goes, if you burn a batch of cookies, you don't give up baking cookies for the rest of your life. You bake a new batch. Friends, some of us might feel like we burn a lot of cookies. And that's part of Lent too. It is a season of ashes after all. Rend your heart, change your life. Don't just change your garments and and don't use Lent as a time to show off our holiness or to brag of our own piety and righteousness because the Christian life is not about putting on the best show that we can on the outside, but this season especially is about looking deep on the inside. And sometimes we need an external ritual 
to help us focus on the internal attentiveness. Rend your heart, not your garments. Don't change your clothes, change your life. And verse 14 asks one of the most beautiful and gracious rhetorical questions in the Old Testament. Who knows? God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Who knows? Who knows what God may do? We may know a little bit more of the story being people that have the advantage of looking at the New Testament. But nonetheless, what even the people in Israel knew that we know is that of God's character, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is that God who we come to with repentance. And we don't know what God will do with every given situation. We know that our part is to repent and our hope and our who knows is what ways will God relent? We can't know what God will do. We could know what God is allowed to do, which is anything, but that maybe what we deserve is punishment and death. And yet, that's not the spirit that even the prophet Joel approaches the people of Israel with. Who knows? The Lord who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that Lord our God in whom we find our help and strength, our shield and fortress, that God may just relent when we repent and leave behind a blessing because our situation is serious, our sin is serious, but it is not hopeless. We know that we've done wrong and that we're not entitled to forgiveness. The judgment that we deserve belongs to God. And yet, that question lingers. Who knows what God will do? Who knows what God will do in your heart if you take this time of Lent as a serious and holy time to be diligent and attentive, to take on something that makes you mindful and aware with a holy diligence? Who knows what God will do with that? What we do know is that God did leave behind a blessing. That we come to Ash Wednesday because we're already anticipating Good Friday when Jesus died for us. Because we're already anticipating Easter Sunday when Christ rose again for us. And so we call the assembly. We call the people together. As the prophet Joel says, Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, and those nursing still at the breast. Meaning, call everyone. That the call for repentance in the Old Testament and our gathering for Ash Wednesday today are one and the same. That this is for everyone. That, that no one is exempt. That no one gets a free pass. That, that there's no one that we would assume is fully righteous and blameless all on their own. Call the village elders, call the, those who are revered and esteemed, those who we could assume no wrong of, call those who seem to be above reproach, call them too. They're not exempt from what is being issued. Call the elders together, call the children, even call those who are still nursing at their mother's breast, meaning call even those who seem so innocent that we can't imagine them having any sin or having done anything wrong. They've committed no 
hurtful deeds or mean acts. Call them too. From the oldest and wisest to the smallest and seemingly most innocent, no one is exempt from this call to be mindful of God. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Friends, this is the call saying, even if you are on your honeymoon, this matters more than anything else that's going on in your life. And that the prophet Joel even is, is pushing against an Old Testament law that would prevent um, brides and bridegrooms on their honeymoon from being called into any kind of action or military service or religious ritual. The prophet Joel is saying, nope, this is so important. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what you're in the middle of. Come before the Lord. Continuing with that same idea, says, let the priests and ministers before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Meaning, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is or what service you're doing. Let the priest who, who might be carrying incense from a place where the people would pray with the priests might be carrying incense to the Holy of Holies, to God's altar. Let them stop what they're doing and weep might be someone who is with someone to offer their sacrifice, to go through the ritual of asking for God's forgiveness. It might be in that very moment, but if the trumpet in Zion and the alarm on the holy hill is issued, stop what you're doing. And as the prophet Joel says, let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Don't make your inheritance an object of scorn. Friends, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you were doing today, you came here. We vary in age, in uh, maturity of faith, in years that we have followed Jesus or maybe the newness of following Jesus. And yet we come here tonight. We come here to heed these words of repent, that God might relent. We come knowing that our situation, our sin is serious. Even people who know the forgiveness of Jesus, we don't take for granted that our sin is serious. But we also don't assume that it's hopeless because the who knows question was answered in Jesus Christ. There's one other thing about Lent that the prophet Joel picked up on in asking basically a question about God's <laughs> reputation that the priests would say, don't make your inheritance an object of scorn, O Lord. Why should the people say, where is their God? Meaning God's reputation is tied up in this too. Once again, it's not about putting on a show, but there is an invitation and a call to be mindful that our actions reflect on God, that there is some weight and seriousness to this that as Christ and the church are referred to as a groom and a bride, that we reflect on Jesus by our thoughts and our words and our actions. Lent is a time for us to be very mindful of how it is that we reflect on Jesus. And this is a shared thing. This is a community call, but also should not be lost on the gravity of the fact that if you were the only Christian, the only follower of Christ that someone knew, what would they think of Jesus 
through and because of you. That's what the prophet Joel means for us. And so we come today mindful of all of that, not taking for granted the seriousness, but also not coming in hopelessness. And we do so with the symbol of ashes. We do so with ashes because God, in God's infinite wisdom, knows that that we need symbols. We need things that we can see and feel and taste and touch to be reminded of the lessons of God's grace. It's why we have baptism in water, to remind us that we're washed. It's why we have communion with bread and juice, to remind us that Christ feeds us. And it's why today we come with ashes. Think about ashes. They're gritty. <laughs> if you ever mix up um, ashes for an Ash Wednesday service, it's, it's gritty and dusty and grimy, and it will pollute anything around you as you try to get it ready. Ashes, when you get accidentally by a campfire some ashes in your mouth, they leave a bitter taste in your mouth, and they're gritty to the touch. Friends, our sin leaves a bitter taste within us, and it is gritty and uncomfortable like sandpaper texture. We might think that we can hide our sin really well, but those parts of our life that make us a little bit gritty, the parts of us that make us bitter, the unlamented griefs in our life will make us bitter people. Ashes remind us just of how bitter life can be and how bitter we can be. It's ashes mixed with oil, oil that can be used for anointing and blessing and healing, but also, honestly, oil is just slimy and greasy and slippery. We as people can be a little bit slimy and greasy and slippery. We can be false and inauthentic. We can put on one face and have another reality living underneath. In those moments, we're not that different from oil, that we don't want to take responsibility for our actions. We'd rather have, like oil, just let it all slip off. No apology necessary because nothing will stick to me. So as you receive the imposition of ashes, if you choose to do so, you might just pay attention to how it feels, that you might feel some of that gritty bitterness of ash on your flesh. And you might feel that cool and sliding feel of oil that reminds us that sometimes we just don't want anything to stick to us, that we want to just wash our hands and pretend that we have nothing to be, to be at blame for. Ashes and oil for us. And yet, the ashes and oil will be washed off. And that's the final lesson of ashes and oil that we have. Once you get the imposition of ashes, whether you choose to have it on your forehead or upon your hand, whichever one, come forward and just you'll indicate to Pastor Audrey or myself by holding your bangs back so we can get your forehead or hold a hand out for us to put mark the top of your wrist, the top of your hand. Your wrist is further up. As you do so, you'll become very mindful that you're dirty. (laughs) 
You will be careful to not touch your neighbor if your hand is covered in oil and ash because it will stain things around you. You will go home and before you go to bed tonight, you will wash that oil and ash from your head because it will stain your pillowcase and there is no amount of OxyClean and Tide that will get it out. That's the seriousness of our sin in an example, that it needs to be washed away. And that just as we're careful to not let our sin be marked and marred upon those around us, so it is that the ashes will remind us of just that, the care and attentiveness, the grittiness and bitterness and the slipperiness that we might come to. So we'll invite you in a moment to come forward on your own time. And if you do not wish to come forward, there is no pressure. This is at your own time. Pastor Audrey will be on the right, I'll be on the left, or your left, your right. I invite you on your own time to come forward and either extend a hand or your forehead to receive the sign of the cross. You'll hear the words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You are alive in Christ Jesus. Because all of our bitterness and grittiness and sliminess made into the shape of a cross reminds us that we bring all of the junk and pain in our lives to the cross of Jesus to be redeemed, to be sanctified, to be forgiven, and to be reminded that we are loved. Return to me, O oh, says the Lord. Even now, rend your heart and return to me. Let's pray. God, in this moment, we ask that you move in our hearts, that this small gesture of ash and oil may be a visible and, and touchable reminder of the seriousness of our situation, that we may be mindful not unto shame, but into action, and that as we have this sign of the cross, we remember that we bring our sin before you where there is no shame or condemnation. Lord, as we do come to you, we remember that we will be washed. We will wash our hands and our foreheads tonight. But that on Calvary, you died for us. And on Easter Sunday, you washed us clean and new and fresh. Let us receive that lesson as a sacrament today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.